of several of the reformers. Um, so last week I spent an entire week not doing a biographical sketch of anyone, so I failed in that way. And then when I was doing my plans a few weeks back about who I was going to talk about and all that, I, I had planned that I had five weeks to teach. And I started doing some math this morning, and my wife will be excited. I only have four weeks to teach, so last week, this week, and then two more weeks from this week. So um, that causes some angst to someone that wants to be very thorough in presentation of things. So we, I've taught about Martin Luther before, who we're going to talk about today. And I taught about him in two lessons last time, and I have squeezed that all into one today. So we're going to have Martin Luther express today. So bear with me. There might be opportunities for me to X out some of the stuff I have here in my notes. But that's our goal today is to talk about Luther. Um, so last week we spent some time talking about how Western Europe was coming out of the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages and kind of what the condition of society was at that time what the condition of the church was, um, how it was kind of stuck in the medieval age, and how it was in need of reform. We looked at some of the reformers like John Wycliffe and John Huss, who were both early precursors to the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation really takes hold in what we're going to talk about today in the life of Martin Luther. Um, So October 31st, 2017... Just roughly two and a half years from now will mark the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. So this 500-year anniversary is nigh upon us, and that is an amazing event, and we'll talk about that today. But the reality of what happened in the Protestant Reformation beginning in 1517 is the change of the church back to the roots of the scriptures in the Bible. That's the main impetus of what Luther was trying to do. Um, And at the end of the 1500s, the true gospel had evidenced itself in many other denominations in Protestantism, things like the Lutherans, the Reformed Church, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterians, and then several Anabaptist groups who believed in believers' baptism, who we find some ancestry in. Um... The emphasis of these new denominations in the 1500s, because of the Reformation, was a renewed uh, emphasis on Scripture. This was Luther's driving force of his life, was to be guided by Scripture. And because of that, Christianity would be changed forever by God's grace. So Luther is a monumental figure in history. Um, It's not like we don't have enough information about Luther. We might not have as much about Wycliffe or Huss, but Luther, there's a ton of stuff. Um, He himself wrote several volumes. The English version of his works is about 55 volumes. Um, If you'd like to pick those up and read them, I encourage you to do that. He preached some 3,000 sermons, many of which we have record of, most of which are in his volumes. Um, He preached multiple times throughout most of his adult life. Um, And then there are still hundreds of studies and biographies on Luther from the past century, and I would expect, if you guys are familiar, when about five or six years ago it was the 500th birthday of John Calvin, there was kind of a renewed interest in Calvin biography, in Calvin studies, and kind of the 20th century saw a renewal in Lutheran studies of Luther, not the Lutheran denomination, and I would suspect that in the coming years we're going to see even more new stuff coming out about Luther. Um, So we have a lot of information about Luther, 
and um, I have a lot of information about Luther to cover. So if you could turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and it's really verse 17 here, as Luther is studying the book of Romans, that he has his conversion experience. So, so we'll read the scripture, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into the biography of Martin Luther. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. And Lord, that's the reality of um, sinful man's condition, Lord, that we are dependent upon um, your power, which is evidenced in the gospel, Lord, to change us. And Lord, you did that for Martin Luther some 515, 520 years ago. And Lord, I pray that, um, that for those in this room and those that visit this church, Lord, that that gospel would become a reality. For those who do not believe, Lord, and Lord, for those of us that do believe, Lord, I pray that um, we'd be sanctified daily by the reality of what the gospel is. Lord, that we can have forgiveness of sins in relationship through, to you through Jesus. Lord, we praise you for that reality. Lord, may we come away our study today of Martin Luther praising you more, Lord, for the work that you accomplished. Lord, May we see that you use men, you use men as means to accomplish your work. So, Lord, may we not uh, spend this hour praising a man, but may we praise you more because of his life. Lord, we ask that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I need my coffee so we can keep going here. So, Luther was born in 1483. He's the son of a miner. Someone who worked diligently and hard um, in his life, a miner who was had worked um, most of his life and had become a part of the rising middle class. One of those things we talked about last week that in society now the middle class. So in feudal society you had the, the kind of the royalty, the nobles, the leaders, and then you had the serfs or the peasants. And now we have this growing middle class. And his father had become part of this middle class after working. Um, a lot of his adult life. And it was the desire of Martin Luther's father that he get a priority of an education so that he wouldn't have to work and toil as a minor as um, his father had. So he made Luther's education a priority. And Luther was gifted, it became pretty apparent early on in his life that he had a great skill with languages. So he picked up Latin and he had the opportunity to learn multiple languages as a young student. His father made great investment to see that his son um, had proper education. He was raised like every other person that was raised in the German lands of the town and in the, at the time, a devout Catholic. Everybody was Catholic at the time. There was no Reformation yet, so he was devoted in his Catholicism. In 1505, he earned his master's degree after being away from school. Uh, this is a pretty monumental event in Luther's life. He's leaving the school to go back, return to his father. He gets caught up in a wild thunderstorm. And when he gets caught up in the thunderstorm, he fears for his life. He almost thinks he's going to get struck by lightning. He cries out in his very Catholic way, Help me, Saint Anne, 
So he's appealing to a saint, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Well, somebody helped him. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it probably wasn't Saint Anne. Um, and his life was spared. And at that time, he rejected his father's desires for him. His father desired him to study law and to become a lawyer. Um, but at that point, because of the perceived help by Saint Anne, he dedicated himself to life as a monk. Um, and he joined the local Augustinian monastery and began a life as a monk. And this is the time where Luther really ramped up his faith in Catholicism and his view of what he should be, should be doing as a monk. He said this about himself, if any monk ever got to heaven by monkery, then I should have made it. <laughs> he was the best of monks. So as an Augustinian monk, he kind of took an order of, in the order of the August, Augustinians, he took vows to uh, do certain things to sacrifice. You know, he would go without heat. He wouldn't, in, in his, what they call cell, which seems so terrible, uh, maybe his bedchamber, um, but they call it a cell, so maybe it was like prison. Um, he would go, he would not have a fire running because he thought maybe that would draw him closer to God. So he, he had this perpetual um, um, sense of having to sacrifice and do without. Um, so he did that. He also chose not to sleep with a blanket, instead to, to suffer cold, um, because he thought these things by sacrificing would draw him closer to God. One thing he also did that he constantly confessed his sins. He never thought he could adequately confess his sins to God. He saw God completely as a judge. Okay, so he, all he did was um, confess to God and say, I've done this, I've done this, and done other things that did not please God. So he saw God as always angry with him due to his sin. So God was a judge to him. No God is father. God was not father. He didn't see the grace that was available through Jesus. This is Luther before he came to salvation. But his mentor saw great promise in Luther. And one of the great things about him was his ability to uh, understand languages. Um, and they, they, were, they saw that he was a gifted student. So in this Augustinian uh, monastery, he was thought of as an aspira uh, 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 aspiring student. Um, one of historians says about Luther and his view on confessing sin. He said, in order to be saved, one must confess one's sins. And Luther had discovered that in spite of his best efforts, his sin went far beyond what he could confess. He was plagued by the fact that he didn't have the righteousness that he felt like he needed in order for God to find him acceptable. One of his mentors then decides to send him to Wittenberg, Germany, so he can get his theological degree. Of course, someone he needs to get his theological degree, and then maybe he won't be as plagued by his lack of righteousness. Um, however, that didn't change. He continued to um, um, struggle with his lack of holiness and righteousness, and that, his, that he couldn't confess his sins enough. So his mentor sent him on a pilgrimage to Rome. Surely, if he's going to find the true faith, find the true faith of the Roman Catholic Church, he should go to Rome. He should go to Rome and see all the trappings that uh, Rome has, that the church has, visit some of the greatest uh, things, some of the greatest relics that we have in the church today, so he should go on a pilgrimage to Rome. Um, so Luther goes there. He, last week we kind of talked about how 
one of the great things of the medieval age for the church was to send people on pilgrimages to go see relics, you know, just generic relics like maybe it was the stone. Somebody identified the stone that killed Goliath and identified that and said, this is the stone that killed Goliath. You should go and look at it and worship there. Um, So he went to Rome to see some relics similar to that. Surely this would help him see um, that he needs to quit agonizing so much over his sin. But unfortunately for Luther, he only saw further how he didn't measure up. Um, and he, his trip to Rome only brought about more doubt in his life. But thankfully, he graduates with a doctorate in theology, um, still not knowing the true God of Scripture. Um, he, had, he had made a, the decision that he could never love God. Um, he could either hate or fear God, but never love him based on the fact that he himself was completely unrighteous. So then in 1515, so not only does he have his theological degree, he's also given the opportunity to teach, um, and he is teaching in Wittenberg, Germany, and he kind of has an evangelical breakthrough. We'll call this the tower experience when he's in his cloister or his cell, and it coincided with his study of the book of Romans, and it was in Romans 1.17 that he understood um, the reality of what salvation is through Christ. And this is what he said. He said, as he was studying Romans 1.17, There I began to understand that the righteousness, righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. So God's word changed Martin Luther, and he was saved. And he said, I extolled that sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the righteousness of God. So through faith, Luther was redeemed. He no longer saw that God's righteousness was his to achieve, but it was rather the gift of God coming through Christ and his achievement on the cross for him. So that was 1515. 1517 is the great year of the Reformation that we begin study of the Reformation. So this starts kind of eroding away at at, at Luther's view of the church. He really starts opposing what we would call scholastic medieval theology. And he really starts one of those Renaissance things we talked about in the Northern Renaissance last week, was a return to the sources, ad fontes was the Latin term, which means that you're going back to the original sources. So he's reading the original Greek of the scriptures and seeing it doesn't align with some of the scholastic theology of the Middle Ages. He's starting to see that. So now he's starting to develop a theology that's different than that of the Roman Catholic Church. So in 1517, his theology had developed and he began to confront many of the teachings of the church two things that really were glaring to him was the church's view of relics and also the sale of indulgences. He feared, Luther really has, and throughout his life, he has a pastoral heart in his theology. And his goal is he sees those things as not encouraging holiness in people, but rather causing them to keep sinning because they could do other things to take, in their view, to take away their sin, or at least the punishment of their sin. So first, let's look at relics. Interestingly enough, 
in Wittenberg, Germany, one of the greatest collections of relics existed in Luther's backyard. Um, and it was actually by, I told you Germany wasn't this one big state at the time. There was like individual provinces that make up the German lands. Um, and the, the ruler of this area was a man by the name of Frederick. He was the prince of the territory. And Frederick loved relics. It was his passion in life. He collected all sorts of relics. He had supposedly, okay, this is not a truth claim, a piece of Moses' burning bush, a veil with Christ's blood on it, and I don't know how this is even possible scientifically, a piece of bread from the Last Supper. I just don't think that would stay, but probably some mystical way that it did stay. Um, So he had these things, and he actually had... I had to stat this a little bit later, but by 1518, he had collected 17,000 pieces of relics that he had on display in his quote-unquote museum. And what's really unique about this is everybody, the, the Catholic Church was really big into relics in the sense that if you took the time to go visit a site that had relics and paid the fee maybe the entrance fee. I could just see this, like all of us going down to the Museum of Natural Science and History and paying our fee to go in and look at some historical things. But the Pope would also grant, if you did this on one day each year, All Saints Day, November 1st, the Pope would grant a special dispensation for whoever visited and that they would receive forgiveness of sins if they paid the fee and saw the relics. Um, Also, so there would be forgiveness available, and also reduction of time in purgatory. And one author I read, which just, I didn't really want to get into the whole doctrine of purgatory at this moment, but said that if you did this on November 1st, All Saints Day, your time in purgatory could be reduced by 1.9 million years. I mean, this is way prior to any theory of evolution that would have espoused the earth was millions of years old. So I don't know how someone would have to sin for so long to have satisfaction in purgatory for 1.9 million years. So I didn't fact check that. Hopefully that author was right. <laughs> but the idea there is that the, um, you know, if, if by visiting these, that's the value they placed on visiting these relics and paying as well. There's, there's two components to it. And that that would somehow satisfy the punishment that you were due for your sins. So it's all about this work that you're doing. There is an aspect still. I don't want to give the idea that there's no idea of contrition or asking for forgiveness. That is a part of, um, at this time, the Catholic system. You ask for forgiveness. And then this is what you do in, in making payment to satisfy the punishment that you deserve for that sin. Okay? Scary. Very scary. Um... And Luther, it should be noted that it was actually quite courageous of him to be attacking the system of relics since it was in the Prince Frederick's territory where this great shrine of relics existed. Um, And he didn't shy away from that. Um, Yet, Frederick loved Luther, loved Luther. And part of the reason Luther was so successful and lived a long life and wasn't killed for his faith um, was because of Frederick. But Frederick and Luther did not see eye to eye on the relics. So the second thing, which we talked about a little bit last week, um, that Luther opposed at this time was the idea of selling indulgences. So we talked about last week the, the word I didn't know how to pronounce, supererogation, which is the idea that Christ, um, he, um, 
I guess, um, fulfilled the law more than that was required. And so did the saints and Mary throughout, the, throughout history. So now that store, there's this storehouse in heaven of merit that can now be dispensed to followers of the Catholic Church. And it was the Pope, as the vicar of Christ on earth, that had the power to dispense this. And one of the methods that he allowed to, um, um, to give forgiveness to people was the selling of indulgences. So you pretty much could go to the priest and confess your sin, and then the priest would prescribe a certain amount of punishment. That could be a corporal-type punishment, or you might have to do a pilgrimage or something like that. Um, or you could purchase an indulgence, which would kind of replace the punishment you should receive for your sin, and you would, your punishment would then be satisfied. Um, so you would get this document that says Matt Scheffler's um, sins have been satisfied because he made payment and he purchased this indulgence. So remember, the church was the primary central source of wealth in Europe. Uh, we went through some of those things last week, identifying how wealthy the church was, and it was very corrupt in its desires to achieve greater and greater wealth. Um, so indulgence selling became a great opportunity area for the church to profit. And in this area, in the German lands especially, there was opportunity for indulgence selling to increase and to increase the profits of the church. Um, there was also a, the reason indulgence selling was important at this time, or key at this time, there was also a political thing going on here. There's a man by the name of Albert of Mainz, M-A-I-N-Z, who was an archbishop in two areas. But that wasn't enough for Albert. He wanted to be an archbishop in three areas. That was against the church's law, except if he would pay an outrageous fee of 22,000 ducats. Didn't research what a ducat is either. Um, but he did not even Albert, who was extremely wealthy, had that kind of money. So instead, he and the Pope, Leo X, agreed that they would unleash a man by the name of Johann Tetzel in the area to begin selling indulgences at a rapid rate. Um, so the, the idea here is once this money is raised through indulgence selling, Albert would then achieve his third um, archbishop um, status over another area. And the Pope had an interest in this too. He was hoping to build St. Peter's Basilica, which we know today is in, Vati in the Vatican City. Um, so the Vatican, the big building, St. Peter's Basilica, was built because of indulgence selling. I might be a little judgmental there. Uh, so Tetzel, he was the chief indulgence seller of the day. And when he came to town, it was like the circus coming to town. He was like the P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey fame. Um, and he would bring, you know, wagons and wagons of people into town. And he would do uh, dramas, things like that, to, to attract people's attention to why they needed to purchase indulgences. Remember, these indulgences were not just purchased for the believers or the church members that were alive at that moment. You could also purchase indulgences for your family members who had passed away or your friends. So you felt kind of a, as, as Tetzel presented um, this offer of indulgences, you must have felt guilty because you wouldn't want your um, family or friends staying in purgatory any longer than they had to. So there's a much, much sense of guilt that people had. So he was rather successful. Now, Tetzel didn't make his way all the way into the city confines of Wittenberg because Luther had opposed him greatly and the city didn't invite him in, but he got very close. Um, 
Tetzel's famous saying was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Such a, such a tragic thing that it's all relative to someone's giving of their finances, especially considering the message Dan preached today, the contradiction there, um, how we can serve. Um, so not only Luther, but Frederick did not agree to have Tetzel in the region, but he got as close as he could. But this upset Luther so much that the Reformation begins. October 31st, All Hallows Eve, 1517, the day before, interesting too, the day before All Saints Day, which when all these relics were going to be seen by people, Luther nails the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. Um, theses is pretty much just propositional statements, statements about what Luther sees wrong in the church this time. He wrote these in Latin. He sent them to Albert as the bishop of the area. Albert immediately alerts the Pope. Hey, we've got a problem here. This guy's opposing what we're saying needs to happen. Luther's attempt was to highlight the abuses of the indulgence traffic and relics. But as one person notes, his charges constituted an assault on the very foundations of the system itself. And it was... In these uh, theses, uh, Luther requested a debate about the sale of indulgences and also the emphasis on relics. So that's what Luther wants to do. He's not saying um, we shouldn't. He, all he wants to do is talk about these things at this point. Here's where I think they're wrong. Let's talk about them. Please, somebody debate me. His concern was twofold. Number one, he hated the idea of indulgences. He knew it robbed the glory of what Jesus had done. But he also cared for his people seeing that they were being taken advantage of by this system. I've put on your notes several of them. That, so, he, so just so you understand, the church door at the time was kind of like where you'd go. It's like the bulletin board or the, I don't know, whatever. It's like, I don't know, in college, you could always just go put up something and somebody could pull it off, you know, like, hey, I need a babysitter. And you put somebody, put your name up there or something like that. And that's where information was. Everything happened in the front of the church. It was kind of the central place of communication so that's why he nailed his statements to the church door. So several of them said, the first one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be of one of repentance. Not just this one time you purchase an indulgence. Christians should be taught that he who sees someone needy but looks past him and buys an indulgence instead receives not the Pope's remission but God's wrath. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. That's the treasure of the church, not these indulgences you're purchasing. The treasures of indulgences are nets which now fish for the wealth of men. Why doesn't the Pope evacuate purgatory for the sake of holy love if he redeems an infinite number of mere money, by mere money, to build a basilica or for such trivial reasons? So this is also the time that um, the printing press was coming of age. A German printer gets hold of these statements of Luther's, um, translates them from the Latin into German, and prints them and passes them um, around the town. And within two weeks, Luther's work had spread throughout all of Western Europe. So this time where information used to have to be written by a scribe and copied slowly, now had been within two weeks, made its way throughout Western Europe. Within a month, it had made its way to England across the English Channel. So think about that. So it's like that's God's sovereignty in all things 
to bring about his plan. Praise the Lord for that. The church saw a dramatic decrease in Tetzel's sales, and obviously they were not pleased. So now Luther um, is the troublemaker, and the church wants to silence him. That's what we'll talk about next. There are several things that happen from the years 1518 to 1520 um, where the church tried to silence Luther. First off, um, a couple months later, April 26, 1518, Luther is met by the head of the Augustinian order um, by, um, at Heidelberg. And that was the first direction from the Pope was to tell Luther, this is an Augustinian issue. He's your monk. You guys need to deal with it. So they send the leader of the order, and he didn't silence Luther. Instead, Luther, they had a, like a little discussion. It wasn't supposed to be a debate, but Luther always takes the opportunity to debate. And he outlines how his theology is different than that of the scholastic theology of the day. He put more theological meat behind his 95 Theses. So their attempt by the Augustinian leader to silence Luther failed. So next, let's ramp it up a little bit. Let's go to the next uh, group of people that could help him. Last week we talked about the Dominican order of monks, and that was the kind of the ones that were responsible for passing down the learning of the scholastic movement. So in October of 1518 in Augsburg, they met with Luther. Of course, they tell Luther, yes, we're willing to debate. So Luther arrives, all studied up, ready to debate a man by the name of, do I have his name here? Yes, Cardinal Cajetan, C-A-J-E-T-A-N. Yet Cajetan did not have the view that Luther was going to debate. Instead, they set up a, a group of arbiters that were completely biased, none sympathetic to Luther at all. And um, the goal of that meeting was for Luther to recant. Because at this point, Luther had gained a popular, um, uh, you know, brand of support. People were following Luther, so it made sense for the church to try to reunite with Luther. They weren't just going to tell Luther, be quiet and off with your head, because you didn't know what was going to happen next. You might have a rebellion on your hand. So their idea was to get Luther to recant. And Luther not only had the support of commoners, he also had the support of a lot of the political, political leaders of the day because they saw this as an opportunity for them to take less power from the Catholic Church and absorb some power for themselves. Um, but Luther, um, in this meeting, even though he wasn't debating, did attack the Pope vehemently. He said, I deny that the Pope is above Scripture. His holiness abuses Scripture. Um, he also said that I feel I have not had justice because I teach nothing save what is in the Scriptures. So Luther's like, how are, you, how are you persecuting me? All I'm doing is teaching you what the Scriptures say. Isn't that the bedrock of our belief? Which obviously wasn't the truth. It was Scripture and the Pope and tradition and councils and Scripture all together. And Luther saying, no, it should be based on Scripture and all those other things are subservient to that. So they didn't silence Luther in 1518. So two more things happened. 1519, he has a debate with probably the most gifted scholar in Roman Catholicism at the time, Johann Eck. So they keep bringing out, you know, here's one gun. We'll get the bigger gun. Let's get the biggest gun. So Johann Eck comes out. Again, 
they trick Luther in coming and saying, hey, we're going to have a nice little debate. Again, no debate. So it's like this, this council of judges are up there. I don't know if you guys have seen any movies with, about Luther, but it's like very intimidating uh, um, look that the Catholics are throwing out to Luther. Um, Eck, though, took it a little bit further with Luther. He pretty much aligned him with the heretics, Wycliffe and Huss, and said that Luther was a heretic himself. Yet the council, at this point, this debate did not declare him a council. But Luther defended Scripture as the supreme authority over popes, traditions, and councils. Sounds like a recurring theme. Um, but as they left that debate, Luther had not been condemned a heretic. A couple months later, he was. The pope issued what they call a papal bull, which is just a decree in the pope's, from the pope's hand. And his goal in this decree was to restrain the wild boar in God's vineyard. Now, we wouldn't agree that the Pope is right on, but it's probably accurate to call Luther the wild boar. I mean, he is really uh, intense in his uh, desire to see the church change. The, the papal bull said that he had 60 days to recant, and in pure Luther-like um, um, fashion, he burned the decree on the 60th day. He then responded, now this is not the age of political correctness either. Okay, this is a different age. He then responds to the Pope in his work on the detestable bull of the Antichrist. So the Pope is the Antichrist. So, and as you read Luther, and it, this is in, in Luther when he's debating other people, debating Catholics throughout the, at that time, uh, the Catholic scholars of the time, they were all prone to exaggeration and hyperbole. Okay, it wasn't like they minced words with each other. They weren't worried about stepping on each other's toes. And obviously Luther was not when he called the Pope the Antichrist. So Luther at that point was excommunicated from the church. So he spent the next two years writing three treatises. One was an open letter to the Christian nobility of the German nation. That was his appeal to these German princes, um, identifying why he believed what he believed, why it was based in Scripture. He also wrote what was called the Babylonian captivity of the church, and this was about the church's um, submission to this view of indulgences and relics. He also wrote the freedom of the Christian, which espoused the theology that he was talking about. I get into those a little bit more later. So these are the major works that outlines Luther's theology and the Reformation as a whole. And that points us to 1521, which many of you are probably familiar with. This is the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms. Um, there are no worms, it's just the name of the city. Um, and once again, this is an opportunity for Luther to debate the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Again, his, his uh, enemy, Johann Eck, um, is there to debate Luther, or at least to get him to recant. Um, that was the goal of the Diet of Worms, is for him to recant. So he gets there the first day. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm ready to debate you. And they say, hey, there's no debate. Here's your works. Here's your books. Do you um, recant the things you've said in these works? And he's like, wait a minute. This is not what I anticipated. So he says, give me a day. Can I sleep on it? So he goes, studies, prays all night with some of his close associates, gets back the next day. Question remains the same. Do you recant? Do, are these, first, admit these are your works. They have them all laid out. And do you recant? And his reply, I'll put it in your outline, is, Since then you, serene majesty, and your lordships request a simple reply, 
I will give it without horns or hoofs and say, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by plain reason, for I believe in neither the Pope nor in councils alone, for it is well known not only that they have, been, they have erred, but also have contradicted themselves, I am mastered by the passages of Scripture which I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant, for it is neither safe nor honest to violate one's conscience. I can do no other. Here I take my stand, God being my helper. Amen. So here I take my stand on the authority of God's Word. So Luther, excommunicated, now heretic, um, was immediately actually kind of, he makes that statement, they, they leave, and he's leaving to go to Wittenberg, and he's kidnapped. So everybody's like, oh, he got kidnapped by the church. No, he got kidnapped by Frederick, who is his prince, to get him into safe hiding. So Frederick kidnaps Luther. They were going to give him, the Catholic Church was going to give Luther a couple weeks head start, and then he was going to be a wanted man. He is a wanted man at this point. He's a marked man, and anybody has the opportunity to capture him, they should. But Frederick seizes the opportunity to kind of put Luther away in exile for his safety. So, Luther has now, after 1521, is the condemned heretic of the church. All right, let's take a deep breath, because I feel like I need one. Um, so, the Reformation is approximately five years old, and Luther has debated, uh, attempted to debate and debate and debate, and his desire is to change the church as it existed. Um, but now the church has left him. They've condemned him as a heretic. They're wanting to kill him. So, Luther is now beginning the process of breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. Are we good? All right. So now he is in hiding for just over a year in one of Prince Frederick's castles at Wartburg. Um, and this actually is one of the greatest things that Luther did when he was in captivity in the Wartburg castle because he translates the New Testament um, into the language of the German people. So now, so this is, this is the, one of the main thrusts of the Reformation, is the, the, uh, the Bible in the language of the people. No longer is it in the, the language of the Latin. It's no longer the Bible of just the elite, you know, the academic elite or the rich of society. It's now in the hands of the people. So he does that. He translates the New Testament into um, the language of the German people. He didn't just use, though, the Greek. He also used the Latin. You know, he's such a linguistic scholar that he's able to piece together what the Latin said, and maybe that was what Jerome was looking at when he translated the Bible into Latin. And he also took Erasmus's New Testament, which was um, completed in 1516. So he had those things, and he, the Bible was then not only translated, it was also printed. The first printing of the Bible had between three and 5,000 copies made. Um, between 1522 and 1534, over 200,000 New Testaments were printed in the language of the German people and distributed in Germany, in the German lands. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So God's used this man, gifted in languages, to help spread the reality of the gospel. Many call this his noblest achievement. Um, and what 
any time the Bible is being translated from the Greek into the language of the people at this time, that, that scripture, that work of literature, the translation, becomes like the, almost the um, precursor to any real language change that happens in that society. So in France, it was Calvin's translation of, or Calvin was in uh, Geneva, but he also, he was translating into French. It's that language. In English, it's Tyndale. So it sets the stage for, the, for modern languages. It's not just, um, it's, it's useful for centuries and centuries. It's amazing that they are the forerunners for modern languages. Um, one historian comments that about the translation, of course it was necessary, necessary. It was basic to all else he did as a reformer. It was the indispensable source of his theology and the authority above all others to which he constantly appealed. So Luther, this was, it, was a, it was a requirement for Luther's, for this Reformation to happen, that this be in the language of the people. He also felt, though, he dealt with a lot of spiritual struggles at Wartburg. He was lonely. I mean, it was just Luther and maybe the staff that's the servants of the castle. Um, he oftentimes felt that Satan was attacking him. He almost felt like personal attacks from Satan to prevent the translation and his other writings. Um, this is the thing about Luther. He doesn't shy away from talking about his weaknesses and what we learn about him. He's, if you read Luther, it's obvious he's a man. He's not some special saint that, has, that is completely unique without sin, but he definitely is. In one exchange, he was so feeling attacked by Satan, he actually hurled his ink bottle at him and his quill. Um, so just seeing the, uh, the reality and the struggle that he had, um, definitely not a, a perfect man as well. So he eventually... Uh, Frederick identifies the fact that uh, Luther, it's probably safe for you to come out of hiding. So in 1523, he returns to Wittenberg. So a couple of things have happened, though. You know, now it, Luther's been gone. He's probably been writing to these people. But some changes had taken place, so he had to confront some things. One of the people that had led the church in Wittenberg in 1523 was a man by the name of Karl Stadt. Um, he had kind of taken some of Luther's views and taken them to an extreme measure in Luther's view. Um, he had changed the administration of the Mass. He'd also removed stained glass and statues from the church. So Luther was still holding to some of these traditional Roman Catholic views, and he opposed those things that Karlstadt had done. And that's part of something we'll talk about. That's kind of what the Anabaptists do, um, and hopefully we get time to talk about them. Um, but they take away those... Um, things that are perceived as idols, stained glass, um, statues, uh, those type of things that could be perceived as idols within the church. Uh, but Luther didn't agree with that. So Luther still has his foot a little bit in the Roman Catholic Church. He's not completely wanting to change every aspect of it. He also had to reject uh, a group of people, the Zwickwau prophets, who had uh, begun teaching about uh, the authority of immediate revelation by the Holy Spirit. Um, that that was more superior than the authority of the Bible. So you kind of have, now you have the, the more radical, almost charismatic types coming out of the woodwork because of this change that Luther has brought about. And they pretty much, that, that's a rejection, of course, of sola scriptura, the idea of scripture alone. So Luther had to deal with them. He also had to deal with a guy by the name of Thomas Munster, who was what we would refer to as a radical reformer. He saw this as an opportunity to take this theology of Luther and position it for how it could help impact society and change society, change 
the feudal system, um, and that wasn't Luther's goal. You know, his was purely religious in the spiritual sense. So Luther didn't support them, and actually um, about 5,000 peasants had joined this guy by the name of Thomas Munster, and the authorities of the day crushed them and killed their entire armies. A lot of historians are critical of Luther on this point, saying, hey, he could have stepped up and prevented that from happening. But Munster really had a different view of, he wasn't looking for reforming or changing the church. Munster was looking to revolutionize society, and that's, that was not Luther's goal. Um, but a lot of people in history point this as one of the negative points of Luther's life, that he had the power probably to step in and save those peasants, but he didn't. And Munster made appeals to Luther, hey, we, you've started this, You've, you've got the ball rolling here. You need to support us. But he had a different view of what needed to be done than Luther did. Luther was not attempting to overthrow the state, not looking to diminish the feudal society that was beginning to crumble. Luther is not a precursor uh, to uh, republicanism or democracy or anything like that. Some people want to pay, get him down that road, but he's really not. He's still a man of that time. He's not a, philo- uh, a philosopher that goes further. 1525, he marries. This is the monk. He's getting married. So this is a major change. Uh, Roman Catholic priests and uh, members of the monasteries were not getting married. Um, But in 1525, Luther got married to his wife, Katie, who he affectionately referred to as Rib, which is kind of funny. Play on Adam and Eve. (laughs) Anyway, it's kind of strange. Um, he had supported that the clergy should marry for years, but he chose not to get married because there was a price on his head. So why should I get married and then get killed? Um, but after some years, thinking that he maybe was comfortable, he decided to get married. For years, he had also helped many runaway nuns find husbands within Wittenberg. Um, he had three purposes to getting married. One was to give his parents grandchildren. Okay. Two was to spite the pope. And number three, he wanted to set an example of Christian marriage. Um, Nowhere does it say that he loved Katie. (laughs) I mean, we all love our ribs. Um, But their home was a center uh, for ministry. They were always teaching. They adopted several orphans from the local town. They had their own children. And it's like Luther's table was always open to those who were wanting to learn uh, his theology I have the Augsburg Confession there, 1530. I'm going to skip that because I do not have time. Um, That's just an opportunity where the Catholic Church tried to bring Luther on board and tried to unite with Luther against some other people that were becoming more radical, the Anabaptists and Ulrich Zwingli. Um, But it was was an opportunity for Luther to lay out his uh, uh, confession of his works, and it was actually written by his famous pupil, Philip Melanchthon. 1534... uh, the complete Bible was translated. He actually used an entire team of translators in Wittenberg to accomplish that task. Uh, so that was monumental for them, not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible, including the Old. Uh, he died in 1546. Um, he says this before he died. I thank you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have revealed your dear Son to me, in whom I have believed, in whom I have preached, confessed, and trusted. So the centrality of Jesus and his work. Philip Melanchthon said this about Luther. 
This was his student. It was not human brilliance that discovered this doctrine of the forgiveness of sins and faith in the Son of God, but God who raised him up before our very eyes, who has revealed these truths through him. Let us hold dear the memory of this man and the doctrine in the very manner in which he delivered it to us. All right, a couple things. Oh, boy. All right, we'll get through it. Luther's works, I've already mentioned three of these. Um, he had three, treat, three treatises that he wrote between 1518 and 1520. 20. Um, so we'll skip that. Um, Luther wrote a lot, but this is what he said about his works. I would rather that all my books would disappear and the Holy Scriptures alone would be read. So his desire was to bring people to the Scriptures. He also wrote what J.I. Packer calls his greatest work, um, bondage of the will. It was a, a work that he was writing in response to Erasmus. So Erasmus, the great humanist, Luther, the great reformer. Um, Erasmus had written a book called On the Freedom of the Will, and Luther's response is the bondage of the will. And it's pretty much a debate on God's sovereignty versus free will. Um, so that happened between Augustine and Pelagius in the, uh, in the uh, early church. And it happens a century later between the Calvinists and the Arminians. So this is Luther's most enduring work. Um, he also wrote a small catechism in 1529, which was used to help, help the common people come to understand the Scriptures. He also used it to train the young people in the schools of Wittenberg. And like I said earlier, the English translation of his, of his works make up 55 volumes. That's Luther's works. His theology, which I started doing this last night, and I, I think it was like, yeah, I finally got to these points last night, and I came up with like eight, so I'm sorry. Um, but one thing we should say about Luther, he's the epitome of a churchman. He brought scripture to the issues of the day as the leader of a church, family, seminary, and a denomination. So in every aspect of his life, it was rooted in what the scriptures say. Some have called him the great theologian of reduction because he focused on the essential points. Scripture, faith, grace, and Christ. Um, Luther wanted a theology that was Christ-centered, biblical, and humble. And some of these points I've given you about uh, that are Luther's theology are really the hallmarks. Some of them are the hallmarks of the Reformation. The first being sola scriptura. So anytime it's sola, whatever, sola scriptura is by scripture alone. He said, let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures. So, you, so you, yeah, you have that with the, the, what's going on with the Catholic Church, but you also have these other people talking about uh, divine revelation, um, revelation from the Holy Spirit being on par with Scripture. Um, so you have more radical reformers going, have, going on at this time as well. But Luther was dedicated to Scripture. Um, the Scriptures alone are our vineyard, he said, in which we ought to all work and toil. Authority for the church was found in Scripture alone, not popes, traditions, or councils. Uh, the next is sola fide and sola grati, which is by faith alone, by grace alone. These are closely related. Um, I have a lot of quotes here, but I don't have enough time. The next was solus Christus. Um, this is that Jesus, by Christ alone, by his work alone, he rejected the church's elevation of the saints and Mary, but his theology was primarily about the work and person of Jesus. He also talked about alien righteousness in his commentary of Galatians. 
We work nothing and we render nothing unto God, but we receive and suffer another to work in us, and that is God. So the righteousness that's available, not on our own account, but because of Christ's. It's righteousness that's outside of ourselves, alien righteousness. Next is soli, soli Deo Gloria. This is the idea that the church, at the time, the church vocations were exalted in, on a, in a higher plane. Um, but but uh, Luther espoused the idea that in every area of life, you should work and live unto the glory of God. So for the glory of God alone. And that if you have an occupation, if you, your vocation is a minor or as a blacksmith, you can honor God just as much as the priest can. Um, and that's an amazing aspect. Next is the priesthood all, of all believers, which rejects the idea that there needs to be a mediator between Christ and the believer. You don't need a priest. You don't need to confess to a priest. Christ alone is the mediator between man and God the Father. He also espoused a proper view of law and grace. Um, R.C. Sproul says that no other person in church history besides the Apostle Paul has understood the law of God better than Luther. Um, a proper understanding of the law leads us to grace, identifies our sin and our need for grace. Um, and this next point, it's going to take a second, is the theology of, cro- of the cross versus the theology of glory. And this is where Luther really attacks the scholastic um, theologians of the Middle Ages. Um, what he called the theology of glory of the day, which was focused on man's abilities and man's, philo- man's philosophical speculations. In this belief, there is a thought that not all of man has fallen, particularly his ability to reason. This thinking leads to the church's belief, the Roman Catholic Church's belief, that works along with grace work together to make a person righteous. Luther rejects this on many levels in his theology of the cross. He says that first it promotes self, theology of glory, and does not exalt Christ. He says that it is folly to think that humans have any good within themselves and futile under philosophy cannot lead to righteousness. Luther wants to celebrate Christ and what he alone can do to save sinners, what he did on the cross. The cross forces one to look outside of oneself for righteousness. With a view on Christ, one realizes his desperate need for him. On this one thing preach, he said, the wisdom of the cross. Um, as far as, as Luther's legacy, last couple things here, he would say this about his legacy. The die was cast, and so I did not want to do anything else than what I did. I began to pull all my trust upon the Spirit who does not carry on a lazy business, busy about working for God. He composed many hymns, including the best hymn ever written, number 26 in your hymn books, A Mighty Fortress is Your God. I should have had Charlie sing that today. Um, um, his preaching was expository. Um, preaching was a primary uh, sacrament to some degree in the Lutheran church. Um, it was gospel-focused. One historian notes, the fine discernment of Erasmus and the gentleness of Melanchthon have never done so much as the divine brutality of Brother Martin. So very great preacher, but brutally honest as well. So that's the legacy of Luther is that we have a theology passed down from Luther that returns to the Bible, returns to um, what the scriptures say about who Christ is, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Um, That is all I have.
made it. Um, let's pray, and then I will I have a couple announcements just to touch on, and then we'll be dismissed. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. Lord, we, we praise you for um, how you work in history. Lord, um, we praise you not because of what men do, but what you do through men. Oh, Lord, as we even consider your perfect timing, um, Lord, how you work events to build your church, we give you praise. Lord, thank you for the life of Luther, not a perfect man, Lord, a man that is, uh, was dependent upon your grace just as we are. So, Lord, be gracious to us. Um, Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to worship together as a body today. Lord, may all that we do bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.